you have your Bibles with you tonight, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm chapter 22. If you uh, forgot your Bible, you can turn to page 482 in the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Although tonight I will be reading from the NIV 84, which used to be in the pew rack in front of you. Um, I have with me uh, my student Bible and uh, a friend of mine recovered it for me uh, with this beautiful leather. But Psalms um, became a, a very important part of my life as a young man, and uh, many of them I would meditate on uh, frequently in this translation. And so I've chosen to, uh, to share Psalm 22 with you tonight from the NIV 84. The title of tonight's message is The Glimmering Light in Christ's Anguishing Cry on the Darkest Day of History. The Glimmering Light in Christ's Anguishing Cry on the Darkest Day of History. I asked um, that Mark 15, 22 through 37 be read tonight partly because we've been studying the Gospel of Mark. And of course, we will give that text its due treatment in time. But I also asked that Brother Alex would read that passage for us because we see the darkness and Christ's anguishing cry, particularly in verses 33 and 34 of what he read Mark writes, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That would have been from high noon until 3 p.m., which was the time at which the sun should shine the brightest, and there was a supernatural darkness over the land. It wasn't an eclipse. It wasn't a cloudy day. There was serious darkness for three hours. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, of course, reminds me of my favorite psalm upon which to meditate when we partake of the Lord's Supper, which we'll be doing tonight, which is Psalm 22. Charles Spurgeon says of this psalm, it is beyond all other psalms, the psalm of the cross. It may have been actually repeated word by word by our Lord when hanging on the tree. It would be too bold to say it was so, but even a casual reader may see that it might have been. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, and ends, according to some in the original, with, it is finished. It is the photograph of our Lord's saddest hours, the record of his dying words, the lacrimatory 
I love reading Charles Spurgeon. I learn new words. A lacrimatory is a little bottle with which to hold someone's tears. It is the lacrimatory of his last tears, the memorial of his expiring joys. Oh, David and his afflictions may be here in a very modified sense, but as a star is concealed by the light of the sun, he who sees Jesus will probably neither see nor care to see David. Before us, we have a description both of the darkness and of the glory of the cross, the sufferings of Christ and the glory which shall follow. Oh, for grace to draw near and see this great sight. We should read reverently, putting off our shoes from our feet, as Moses did at the burning bush. For if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it is in this psalm. Now Spurgeon uh, recommended John Stevenson, who wrote an entire book on Psalm 22. It's called Christ on the Cross, and it is to that work for which I am indebted for a majority of what I will share tonight. It was too good not to share with you. I want to begin by showing you some of the striking prophecies in Psalm 22. If you look at verse 6, the psalmist writes, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Of course, we just heard in Mark's gospel how the men at the cross, those gathered around in this public space, they mocked our Lord as he hung there on the tree. And ironically, as they asked him to save himself, he would not have been able to save others had he come down from the tree. We see in verse 12, the attack of evil. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It is melted away within me. Long before science ever understood why Jesus would have shed water and blood when he was pierced in his side, the psalmist prophesies that his heart would turn to wax and he would be poured out like water. This is the reaction of a body crucified. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. We know that thirst was a major part of what people being crucified experienced. Dogs have surrounded me. You remember the, uh, the, the Gentile woman? She came to Jesus and Jesus said, no, I came for the Jewish people first, and she says, yes, but even the what? The dogs get the crumbs from the table. Dogs being used as a symbol for Gentiles. Gentiles have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me, and they have pierced my hands and my feet. Tell me this is not the psalm of the cross. 
I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me, Jesus being crucified naked. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing, directly fulfilled in Mark's gospel as we read it tonight. Now many people will see the similarities of the cross ending here. They, they, they're obvious, you know, the piercing of the hands and the feet, the thirst, the, the attack of wicked and evil men, and uh, they stop. Especially because the first verse says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some would be prone to think that it doesn't go along with verses 19 through 21 and following. But we're going to take a little detour and come back. And I want you to see that the rest of the psalm is the joy that was set before him. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, some of my favorite verses as well. And of course, in it begins with a therefore, which means we need to set a little context. Where does Hebrews 12 come after? Hebrews 11. And many of you, if you've studied your Bibles, will know Hebrews 11 is sometimes called the Hall of Faith. Abraham and Noah and Isaac and, and all these men and women who, by faith, endured trial and hardship, suffering, with the sight of a greater promise, a, a grand city, if you will, a, a hope of the future is what helped them endure the present sufferings. I mean, people being sawn in two, I don't know about you, but that doesn't go well on like a Christian mug, right? We need to have a category in our minds for what it means to suffer with faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, people with faith who endured hardship, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. We'll get to that towards the end of the message. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher. Some translations, the perfecter, we'll come back to that word as well, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus, by faith, the author and finisher of our faith, the one with perfect faith, endured the hardship and suffering of the cross for joy that was set before him. What was that joy? Well, I believe that that explains the latter half of Psalm 22. Jesus, because of his untainted holiness, his ultimate inseparability in the Godhead, he withstood the loneliness of the cross and could say even in his spirit while suffering, verse 19, but you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will, do you hear the future? Enduring for the joy set before him. I will 
Declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not, he has not, he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Which is why when we study verse 1, which we will in depth, we must be careful to thread the needle. There was, no ins- there was no separation between the Father and the Son. I believe Jesus truly wanted this entire psalm to be understood, and we'll see this in a moment. So the, the Father, the, he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the one on the cross. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. This is a joy set before a dying Savior on the cross that nations would come and bow down in worship to the one true and living God. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, for it is finished. He has done it. I want to focus on Psalm 22, 1, and consider today the glimmering light in the anguishing cry on the darkest day of history. John Stevenson writes, it was usual at the period for the Hebrews, as the Jews, to quote the commencement, the beginning of a psalm in an audible manner in order that those around might join in its mental or vocal repetition. So we have some reason to conclude that our dying Redeemer occupied his thoughts with speaking to himself and to God in the words of this psalm the applicability of every sentence of it to his condition strengthens that opinion, which is why I've gone to great lengths to try and demonstrate that it does apply in every way to our Savior. But I want you to see the glimmer of light, not the bursting forth of light of verses 19 and following, the the glimmer of light even in the cry of verse 1. And again, we set the context that there were There was darkness for three hours, an internal wrestling where a spiritual battle was taking place and a noticeable silence of our Savior from the sixth to the ninth hour for those three hours until he breaks the silence with this anguishing cry. But note, even in the cry, the language of adoption, the language of possession, he cries, my 
God. My God. Why have you forsaken me? Not, oh God, not a foreign deity, not someone who I have no relationship with. It is a cry of a child seeking to be rescued from the grasp of foes, looking to a distant parent. It's the cry of one suddenly surrounded by circumstances never before experienced. The outpouring of a deep, inward, and long-pent grief. The unburdening of a heart, which but for words would break, and but for faith would never gain relief. Therein lies the glimmer. A cry of the son, laying claim on his innocence to his father. And it comes out in the next question. Consider the varying ways you could accentuate this My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For what reason have you forsaken me? I'm innocent. Remember, Jesus stood trial before a religious kangaroo court with false witnesses whose charges couldn't stick to him and then was sent to stand in the praetorium before the government. And Pilate washed his hands of him Innocent, innocent in both courts and yet condemned to die like a criminal. Why have you forsaken me? For, for hours, the powers of darkness had assailed the spirit of Christ with every variety of temptation. Men and devils availed themselves of this opportunity. His hour of weakness, 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4, was their hour of power, Luke 22, verse 53. Outwardly and inwardly, the fiery darts being thrust at him. But the pain of crucifixion, the forsaking of friends, the taunts of men, and the assaults of devils were nothing in comparison with bearing the wrath of the Father against sin. Why have you forsaken me? It's here carefully we thread the needle. I wish not to say too much at this point. We must remember there was no disagreement or separation between the Father and the Son. This was always the plan. No one takes my life, Jesus says, John 10. I lay it down willingly. He willingly took the cup from the Father in the garden. He willingly bore the wrath of the Father on the cross. And so, for the sake of sinners like you and me, he experienced something he had never felt experientially before, the wrath of God towards sin. So let us keep this distinction clearly before our minds, Stevenson writes. Christ's person was still holy and acceptable to the Father as before. The divine wrath could not and did not burn against him. It grew hot against the sins of man. He was bearing on his shoulders. Why have you forsaken me? Because Jesus alone was bearing the weight of the sins of the world. Behold, the Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who takes away the sins of the world. He bears the weight of the sins of the world. So, the answer, part one, is Jesus was bearing the weight of our sin. 
But another reason would be to demonstrate that God the Father is just and righteous and takes sin seriously. Paul makes a defense of this in Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness or the justice of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, they foretold this was coming, just like the Psalms have. The righteousness or the justice of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. What does that word mean, propitiation? It means to satisfy the wrath or the anger of God. God the Father put Jesus forward as a as a satisfier of his wrath by his blood for sin. This, we are told, was to show God's righteousness. Why did the cross happen? Why was Jesus put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith? Paul says to show God's justice, his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, his patience, He had passed over former sins. This answers the question, why does David get away with adultery and murder? Blessed are you whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That feels pretty good for an Old Testament saint. Only by the bull or a goat? No, it was never blood of bulls and goats. We knew that. That's why they kept on having to be sacrificed over and over and over again, foreshadowing typifying, telling us of the future, one perfect sacrifice. Because in God's divine forbearance, he had passed over those sins. And he was to show his righteousness that he took that seriously too. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why is it fair for you to go to heaven when you and I are sinners and worthy of death, all of us sinning and falling short of the glory of God. Why? How is that just? Because God is righteous and he punishes sin and he did so on Jesus by his blood. Why had he forsaken the son, so to speak? Because sin is exceedingly sinful. Friends, the anguish and the agony of our Savior as portrayed on the cross is to be a picture for us of the sheer darkness and wickedness of our sin. Do not take sin lightly. All we like sheep have gone astray and have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. He was forsaken for our sin. But the second question in verse 1, why are you so far from saving me? Consider with me now the way in which the Son is glorified in the crucifixion. Jesus says in, or John writes in his gospel, John 13, 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, 
Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. All of Jesus' life, love to God was the secret spring that set in motion every activity, every affection, every look, every word, every action. For Christ to live was to honor the Father. In death, it was to glorify him as well. But now, the moment has come in which the Father will return this glory to the Son. The hour of Christ's bearing of the wrath of the Father was the beginning point of Christ's uninterrupted and eternal glory. He humbled himself to the point of death, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. This was to to glorify the Son. And from that hour to this very day, you better believe that the spiritual forces of wickedness remember Christ's all-powerful strength, his invincible holiness. They tremble at his very name and throughout all, ter- all eternity will suffer the punishment of his wrath. This may not be the first and foremost purpose of the crucifixion, but it is by no means an unimportant part of it when we conclude that the reason why the Father was so far from helping Christ was that the victory might altogether belong to him. We look now at the final words in verse 1. Why are you so far from the words of my groaning, my suffering? I would tremble to give an answer if it wasn't coming from Scripture, and even being in Scripture, I say it with all reverence. Hebrews 5 and verse 8 and 9 teaches us that Christ learned obedience through what he suffered and was made perfect. Reading from Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, or perhaps having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. What does this mean? That he learned obedience. That he was being made perfect. Death was the final lesson Christ was to learn. He became obedient, Paul writes, to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And it is with reference to that which the writer of Hebrews says, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Had he been satisfied with a crucifixion up to the point of bloodshed? Had he considered sin to be covered with shed blood? He would have remained ignorant of a crucifixion to the point of death. In that case, he would have been deficient in the grand and essential point for which he came into the world, and the writer of Hebrews could not have added, he was made perfect. This perfection was not a moral perfection. He had lived a perfect life, obedient, but he needed to obey legally, officially, to the point of death. His obedience, his perfection consisted in his accomplishing everything that was written about him. When he stood up in the synagogue, behold, 
It is written about me in the book, and I come to do your will. He needed to accomplish all that was written of him, fulfill all the types by which he had been foreshadowed. Death was the great event to which all Scripture testified and which all the sacrifices under the law foreshadowed. Have you been reading Leviticus lately? Christ, therefore, could not be said to be made perfect or have learned obedience till after he had tasted death. We've been considering tonight the most solemn fact, without exception, in the history of the world. It is a truth which not only fills but overwhelms our minds. God the Father pouring out his wrath on the Son because he was bearing the sins of the world, that he might gain a complete victory over the spirits of darkness, and that he might learn all the obedience and become perfect as an example through the things which he suffered. All the while, the son's faith was perfect. His holiness was unsullied, and his love was stronger than death. But I don't want you to leave tonight with a mere contemplation. I would like to call you to respond. First and foremost, if you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for your sin. Do it today. Do it now. By faith, Paul says in Romans, believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, He made him, that is God the Father, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the greatest exchange you will ever have. Place your faith in Christ alone for salvation and do it today. But secondly, tonight's message is a reminder for all of us We need to take sin seriously. Consider the price Jesus paid for your sin. Remember how Scripture teaches us that unconfessed sin will keep us from having fellowship with one another. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But maybe you've searched your heart. Maybe you're pondering the depths of your soul, and you aren't You aren't seeing any glaring sin right now. I want us all to pause and consider sins we may be unaware of for which Jesus paid 
the price. Have you been reading Leviticus lately? Someone sins unintentionally, later becomes aware. Blood is shed. An animal died, foreshadowing the death again of our Savior. There may be depths of your soul you have not plunged, for which Christ paid. Praise be to God. Right here, on the page beside in my Bible, Psalm 19, verse 12. Who can discern his errors? We are so blind to our own sin, oftentimes. Who can discern his errors? David writes, forgive my hidden faults. As we reflect and come to the Lord's table in just a moment, pray this prayer with me. Who can discern his errors? Would you forgive even sins I don't know about? Sin is what brought about the cry of anguish from our Lord. And sin will anguish and burden your soul. So let's do what Hebrews 12.1 said tonight. Let's lay aside every weight. Let's lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us so that we may run this race with endurance. Looking to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who suffered innocently, He learned obedience through what he suffered, we are told. And so I wrestled with whether or not to bring this in, but it needs to be said. Lastly, by way of application, perhaps, after you've confessed known sin and prayed for forgiveness and cleansing for even unknown sin, maybe you are being taught obedience through innocent suffering. Do you have a category for that? Paul pled three times for thorn in the flesh to be removed. The answer was no. Grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in your weakness. Job, it's in our Bibles, innocent, suffering. Consider The thorn may be there, the innocent suffering may be for your strengthening, your improvement, your increase of grace to make you a conqueror over a spiritual enemy and to teach you obedience by the things which you suffer. As members of Christ's church, this verse confounds me. Ephesians 3 and verse 10. We are to show principalities and powers In the heavenly places, the manifold wisdom of God, the church, through the church, Paul writes, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. We get so wrapped up in worldly affairs and entangled in this life and today and tomorrow and this chore and that thing and this work thing and this family thing and that post and whatever. We get so wrapped up that we've forgotten. God is at work even in us to teach them. Could it be an angel of light is watching 
confounded at your obedience in spite of suffering? Or could it be a demon is being taught to tremble by you proving Satan is a liar? Remember, that's exactly what happened in Job's case. The Lord delivered Job into the enemy's hand in order that the lie Satan had told might be detected. The lie he had said in the presence of all the, quote, sons of God, the demons, in whose presence this lie was uttered. Trial, trouble, deprivation, loss, one upon another, brought in rapid succession against God's chosen servant, Job. Satan desired to have him. And though all the means and instruments of satanic malice were brought to the bear upon this lonely man, he could not be driven to curse the Lord. The bitterest blast only caused his faith to burn brighter out of the ashes of his earthly hopes. All of the spiritual spectators of that mortal showdown, they saw Satan's scowl of dismay, the gleam of triumph, even in Job's sunken eye when he exclaimed, though he slay me, yet I will trust him. The glimmering light in the anguishing cry. I pray it will be so with us. May we take courage from the consideration of these weighty matters tonight. And be faithful even unto death. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are saved, Proverbs says. So call upon that name. Appropriate the name of Jesus for yourself. Do it again and again. Cry to Jesus even in your deepest gloom and make sure it has my in front of it. My God, my God, beware of distrust. Though he slay me, I will still trust him. Beware of distrust. Beware of unbelief. That leads to despondency and despondency to despair. Always look upwards, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So steady yourself on him, through him, on God as your Lord and your Father. Cry out earnestly, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Bring your generous spirit to me. The comforter will come. Alone can impart life and light and peace to us. And though at times it may seem he tarry, wait for him. Wait for him in prayer and hang upon him in earnest longing and expectation. And thus, I pray, there will always be a glimmer of light amidst the anguishing cry, even of your and my darkest hour. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I am an unworthy messenger. Father, I thank you 
for the blood of Jesus shed for me. I thank you for the assurance and hope of salvation I have by grace, through faith, in Christ. And so Lord, on that precious assurance and promise of salvation with which I stand, I pray that tonight's weighty, weighty message may remind us to lay aside the sin that burdens us and to look to you alone. The heroes of our faith, having gone before, enduring trials and hardships, living as strangers and aliens, going about sometimes homeless and in caves, we are unworthy The writer of Hebrews says the world was not worthy of them. We are not worthy of those witnesses of faith, but all the more are we unworthy of the author and perfecter of our faith. May we learn obedience even amidst suffering, even amidst hardship. May we learn faithfulness. And may we remember it always has joy set before us. There's always a glimmer of light. There's always the hope of salvation, the hope of redemption, the hope of the redemption of even our fallen bodies. And it's a hope that we have because of Christ. Thank you. Thank you. Father, teach our hearts to obey. Teach our, our souls to trust. And Father, through it all, may we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.